0: This is Global Tennessee, news, analysis, and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, non-profit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants.
1: Today's episode of Global Tennessee will bring you conversations on an organization promoting smart power and an organization promoting development and humanitarian aid. The U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, or USGLC, works in our nation's capital and across the country to strengthen America's civilian led tools, development, and diplomacy alongside defense. By advocating for a strong international affairs budget, The USGLC is working to make America's international affairs programs a keystone of U.S. foreign policy. They're all about smart power. We're going to learn more about the USGLC from their national outreach coordinator, Carrie Campbell, today. Carrie comes to the USGLC from her previous position as chief of staff to the South Carolina House of Representatives Deputy Minority Leader James Smith, where she oversaw all political and legislative priorities. Her previous experience includes serving as South Carolina deputy political director for the Hillary for President campaign during the 2008 primaries and a former lobbyist for a South Carolina education organization. Carrie has worked on numerous political campaigns at the local, state, and presidential level, overseeing field fundraising and policy development. She graduated with honors from the University of South Carolina, where she focused on political science. She's a native of Decatur, Alabama, and spent several years in Nashville, Tennessee. Carrie was in Nashville recently, along with Jeremy Talbert, the Outreach Coordinator for the Southeast. They organized a community event featuring David Stanton from the U.S. Agency for International Development. The USAID leads international development and humanitarian efforts to save lives, reduce poverty, strengthen democratic governance, and help people progress beyond assistance. It was created by President John F Kennedy in 1961 to lead the US government's international development and humanitarian efforts. More on the agency at usaid.gov. David Stanton is a public health leader and former director of the US Agency for International Development's Office of HIV/AIDS. He has 19 years of experience working with US AIDS HIV/AIDS program and over 30 years of experience in public health, including working on sexually transmitted infections, HIV and AIDS treatment, and clinical epidemiology. David has four years of overseas experience in West Africa. Additionally, he served on the transition team that established the Office of the U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator and at the U.S. Department of State. We thank Carrie and Jeremy for bringing David Stanton to Nashville, and we thank Carrie and David for taking time to talk with Global Tennessee. Welcome to Global Tennessee, I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Today we're gonna to be talking with Carrie Campbell from the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, and David Stanton from the U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, He's uh, in charge of uh, global health and uh, has quite a story to tell about the U.S. government's role in uh, assisting uh, countries around the world. Uh, First, we're going to talk with uh, Kerry Campbell, who's the National Outreach Coordinator for something called the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition in Washington, D.C., the USGLC. So we're going to dip into some acronym Ology today uh, with USAID and USGLC, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, Carrie, welcome to Global Tennessee.
2: Thank you so much, Patrick. I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, uh, we understand that uh, you know you know how to say y'all properly, <laughs> uh, having lived in, in Nashville and having family here. Uh, tell us tell us about your Nashville connection.
2: So I moved here in 1983, graduated from high school, uh, went to two different high schools here, Overton and Franklin Road Academy. Oh,
1: Overton. Okay. Yeah. We have uh, an academic world quest team from Overton. <laughs> oh, really? Participates all the time.
2: Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, and I still have a brother and sister-in-law, aunt and uncle that live here. My niece and nephew live here. One graduated from Vanderbilt. One is going to school at Belmont.
1: Terrific. So you're you're an original Bobcat. I, not me. Overton.
2: Well, I, well yes.
1: Okay. All right. Well, let's <laughs> let's get into uh, what you do now, and that's. Um uh, being a leader in the uh, Global Leadership Coalition as the National Outreach. And today we uh, we had a, a great session with uh, David Stanton from USAID that was sponsored by the Global Leadership uh, Coalition. But you guys are, are a lot more than just doing uh, field visits and setting up uh, seminars. Uh, tell us a, b- a bit about the GLC.
2: Sure. So, well, first let me say thank you for being a wonderful part of U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, Patrick. Uh, you've been a great asset to us here in Tennessee. And You're welcome a little bit more about what you've done and others in Tennessee have done and around the country. But the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition is a coalition of over 500 businesses, NGOs, and faith-based organizations. Uh, These are people who uh, are very concerned about America's global leadership and America's role in the world and want to make sure that we sustain our global leadership. Uh, The Washington Post deemed us the coalition of strange bedfellows (laughs) several (laughs) years ago, and that's because we're everybody from Walmart to World Vision and Land O'Lakes and Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Bread for the world, and I could go on and on with the alliteration, but Um, But these are all individuals that understand that in order for America to survive and thrive, we need to be globally engaged. And really, part of our global engagement includes development and diplomacy, so making sure that we're dealing with uh, the developing world that, and trying to eradicate poverty and eradicate global health issues, creating economic opportunities for exports of American goods and services to go into new markets, um, and making sure that our diplomatic corps is not only staffed but doing the work to create peace around the world. So we also have our National Advisory Council. Uh, it's a bipartisan group of former members of Congress, former secretary of cabinets, and all living former secretaries of state. And that is chaired by uh, Secretary Colin Powell. And then we have our National Security Advisory Council, which is over 200 retired three- and four-star generals and admirals, co-chaired by Admiral James Travitas and General Tony Zinni. These are all military leaders who clearly My believe My former
1: boss at U.S. Central Command.
2: Absol- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, these are all individuals who cur- certainly believe in a strong military and defense budget, but they also will go talk to members of Congress to talk about how development and diplomacy are a critical part of our national security strategy, and they're the first tools in our toolbox to use.
1: So there is uh, some sparks left for bipartisanship in the, in the nation's Absolutely.
2: Capital. These are all people who believe that politics stops at our shores. And and,
1: and you, uh, you gave some examples this morning at the seminar of things that are happening around the world that... Uh, that are inspired by the the works of the, the GLC and and support for the foreign aid uh, budget do you want to, do you want to share some of those and and you also want to tell us about uh, how Tennessee is impacted mm-hmm. by the foreign affairs budget and and the work that uh, the GLC supports.
2: Sure. So we have a a statewide network within the United States. We have members all over in all 50 states, but we have active coalition presence in 32 states. And we have advisory committee members that are set up um, in in these states. And these are people who discuss the return on investment back to their local communities, to their members of Congress, so that their members of Congress understand the impact locally to development and diplomacy and thus have a, uh, a desire to want to support the funding for State Department, USAID, and all of these other programs. We talk about development and diplomacy as a part of, and I mentioned our national security strategy, but it's, it's much more than that. It's also part of our economic strategy, doing those new, opening up those new markets. But it's also who we are as Americans and our humanitarian values, that this is who we've always been. And you can see that firsthand with what's happening right now in the Bahamas. USAID was quickly on the ground, and I'm sure David will touch on this. But uh, Administrator Green immediately went to the Bahamas, and we have programs that are going in place that are in place now, helping the Bohemian people um, deal with what is a devastating crisis. But you can look at what's happening in the Congo with with Ebola. You can look at what's happening with the migration out of the Northern Triangle um, with people who are fleeing violence and extreme poverty and and a lack of opportunities um, also happening in Venezuela. You don't have to, all you have to do is turn on your television. You don't have to go to these countries. You just turn on the news and everything you see, there's an impact globally. And so American businesses export. And they want to continue to export because 95% of our world's con- or the world's consumers are outside of our borders. Mm-hmm. And when I looked up the data, um, the export markets that Tennessee as a state, um, their their top export markets are in um, the top 10 countries. Six out of those 10 countries received development assistance at one point. And I'll most notably say Germany after, with a Marshall Plan and Japan. And then the 10th export market is South Korea. Which is also a recipient of development assistance. It's not a short-term plan; it's a long-term plan. But the money we invested then, our return on investment now is is immeasurable.
1: All right. So, um, uh, what uh, what sorts of other things uh, should we expect out of USGLC, come down the pike? I know you you guys are are the champions of soft power, and and uh, it's it's uh, probably. Um, a good sign that there are so many national security and uh, military people associated with the GLC, the those who believe that soft power is uh, is the first place for American engagement abroad, as opposed to the uh, use of military force.
2: So we are clear advocates of soft power, but we don't say think that that's at the expense of hard power. So uh, we, when you combine the two of them, others have deemed it smart power. So it's going to take both smart power. Um, smart there, power. There you go. So it, development and diplomacy are the first tools in our toolbox. Military should be our last, but the military is still necessary. So we don't want to look at this like it's either or, but it's a, com, it's a co- co- cohesive strategy. Um, so we work with members of Congress. We're hoping to, to uh, have a conversation with Senator Blackburn. Um, we want to talk to the incoming senator after uh, we honor Senator Alexander for his years of service. Uh, senator Corker was a phenomenal asset uh, to the to foreign affairs and really understood the importance of development and diplomacy and being globally engaged. Senator Frist is actually our co-chair in Tennessee, along with uh, Governor Bredesen. Um, so there are uh, individuals in South or in in Tennessee who really understand the importance of this that we engage with. We want to grow that engagement to others. Any anybody who's listening to this podcast who's interested in being involved with us, will certainly let us know. Um, but we want the local constituents talking to their congressional delegation because it's you all that make the difference. That. They listen to the voters more than anybody else. And so when the voters can tell the story of the impact and why this matters, that makes sure that we stay globally engaged.
1: Well, we at the World Affairs Council hope to uh, educate our community on what's going on in the world, and certainly uh, that uh, influences how they make decisions uh, at the ballot box and how they talk to their elected representatives. Uh, Gary Campbell, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. And we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with uh, David Stanton from the U.S. Agency for International Development. We've been talking with Carrie Campbell, the National Outreach Coordinator of the U.S. Global Leadership uh, Coalition. Thanks, Carrie. Thank you. And we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council. We invite you to share your thoughts with us in email, info at tnwac.org. You can subscribe to the World Affairs Council newsletter on the website, tnwac.org. And you can like us on Facebook at TennesseeWAC, as well as follow us on Twitter at TNWAC. Don't forget to tell your friends about Global Tennessee and the World Affairs Council. This podcast and other educational programs from the World Affairs Council are supported by you and our sponsors. Are you interested in supporting global affairs awareness in your community? Visit TNWAC.org for more information.
1: Welcome back. I hope you found our conversation with uh, Carrie Campbell from the U.S. Global Leadership uh, Coalition. She's the National Outreach Coordinator with uh, some Nashville connection. uh, To be insightful, Uh, I I certainly did, to find out the work uh, that the Global Leadership Coalition is doing that uh, impacts uh, the U.S. foreign aid budget and what uh, is happening around the world uh, in terms of U.S. engagement uh, and what uh, she called soft power, excuse me, smart power. Uh, and now we're, we're going to turn to uh, David Stanton. He is the uh, U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, coordinator for global health. Uh, help help me with that, David. Is is that the the exact title? Did I get that right? No, but okay. uh,
3: but uh, thank you for that title. What's what's the title? Uh, yeah, right now I'm a senior technical advisor for global health. I uh, report to the. Senior Deputy Assistant Administrator for Global Health. Irene okay, Cook. sorry yeah.
1: for a premature promotion there, but... Uh, yeah,
3: no, I'll take it. Thank you.
1: Okay, well, David, uh, welcome to Global Tennessee, and and thanks for being with us today. Uh, thanks for talking with uh, the seminar at, at uh, lunch today about what's happening in the world of global health, and uh, we're glad to have you here. Oh,
3: my pleasure, and it's I uh, appreciate it very much, the opportunity to, uh, to speak to Tennessee and uh, I will say, uh, coming into this, I did a little bit of homework, and I found out that uh, if you Google global health and Tennessee, you will find a lot of stuff. This is a state that has really uh, stepped up and uh, uh, invested a lot of its time, uh, blood, sweat, and tears in uh, assisting people around the world with uh, improving health care. is uh, really remarkable.
1: Excellent. Well, hopefully in the next uh, 15 minutes, we'll uh, help people understand what that role is. Uh, You know, our our World Affairs Council, we we work to uh, bring the world to Tennessee. And certainly the global health uh, picture, as you point out, is relevant to Tennessee, but uh, more important. It's something that the United States is deeply involved in. Uh, to help people around the world, and, and uh, let's talk a little bit about what uh, the Agency for International Development, in that that world of uh, acronym soup up there, does.
3: <laughs> yes, um, sorry about the acronyms. I'll try to minimize them. Um, stop me and make me explain that if I if I don't. Um, the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, was uh, was formed in 1961. Uh, Under President Kennedy, uh, Congress passed the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961, which, among other things, created the agency and uh, set uh, set up our authorities. The act has been modified many times over the years, but is still referred to as the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961. Um, the, the it was actually an offshoot of our of our um, involvement with the Marshall Plan, and uh, early in the early in the uh, early years of USAID, a lot of our assistance was about uh, construction, building roads, dams, other other pieces of physical infrastructure, but very quickly shifted to human development, and that means education, healthcare. Uh, um, uh, a variety of uh, agriculture and, and, and other things that sort of sort of the teach a man to fish uh, kinds of approaches to foreign assistance, and and over the years as the needs of the developing world have changed the the, the approach of USAID has has also changed, but a, a few things have remained constant and. Um, and those are the, that that USA. It is a part of U.S. foreign policy, and one of the one of the things that we do is we promote uh, democracy around the world. We also promote strong markets because we feel that strong markets uh, make for more stable uh, economies, more stable governments, and uh, prosperous people. And then finally, and it's a big piece of what we do is is we provide assistance to the world's poor. And uh, that manifests itself in a variety of ways, from uh, health to education to, as you alluded to earlier, disaster assistance.
1: And uh, you, you used the term earlier today in, in uh, your conversation, the journey to self-reliance. Can you tell us a little bit more about right. what, what that uh, slogan is about? Well, it's more than
3: a slogan. And uh, it was coined by our current administrator, Mark Green, former congressman, former ambassador to Tanzania, now the administrator of USAID. And he believes strongly that, uh, that the role of foreign assistance is simply to work itself out of a job. If we do it right, there'll be the need for less of it. And uh, he sees our role around the world as entering into partnerships with foreign governments to lead them to more self-reliance and less reliance on foreign assistance. It's ambitious, but the truth is it's a logical approach to foreign assistance, that, that uh, it isn't a, uh, an endeavor that we do uh, without end. There should be a logical goal in mind, which is you build up the economy and the capacity of the population to meet their own needs and to, and to become part of the, uh, the global economy. And there are some notable countries where we have seen tremendous success there, Thailand being one of them, uh, South Korea being
1: another but it's an uneven landscape. There are different, uh, different paths for different countries and different uh, yeah. levels of effort. Not every country is going to graduate tomorrow.
3: Um, and, uh, and I think it's important for us to realize this. And we all understand this. And so there's, there is a continuum. There is a spectrum of, of uh, need and, and ability, and so the, the journey to self-reliance for some countries is going to be probably decades long, and we understand that. But even, but even for those countries, that is the goal. That is uh, the, sort of the guiding principle, of the North Star, is what are we doing here that is going to produce the sustainability and the, uh, the self-reliance and resilience of this, of this nation?
1: Let's talk about uh, the global health aspects of USAID's work, which is uh, your, your sweet spot. Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh,
3: I've been with the agency for 22 years, and so I'll, I'll speak to what we've been doing in that period of time. Um, the, the focus of USAID's health programs over this period of time has really been on a, a few specific areas. One is addressing infectious disease threats to life around the world. Um, that overlaps a bit with our uh, interest in re- preventing uh, child deaths and maternal deaths. And, and then uh, finally, is sort of addressing the pandemic threats around the world, which are also infectious, but, uh, but uh, unique in their nature. And, and you mentioned Ebola earlier. I'll come back to that. But, in, but the, main, the, 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 the killers uh, around the world that we address are things like AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, and, uh, and then other infectious diseases that maybe don't get as much airtime as you might expect, but these are unusual diseases. They're called neglected tropical diseases because they're sometimes an afterthought in people's uh, thinking that things like schistosomiasis, uh, lymphatic filariasis, diseases that end in iasis, it might be a better way to put it. (laughs) Uh, But it's actually an extraordinary program. It isn't our biggest, most expensive program, but this one is, is remarkable because we've been able to leverage billions of dollars of donations of pharmaceutical products from the private sector and for a small investment in having a program that can then deliver those medications we've we've achieved some tremendous results and we're on the cusp of eliminating one of those diseases and perhaps another in the next 5 years so it's 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 remarkable um the president's malaria initiative has was launched uh in the bush administration pepfar the president's emergency plan for aids relief also launched in in that administration continue now through uh, two more presidents uh, with tremendous bipartisan support and you
1: had a role uh, in establishing that office which now resides in the state department
3: I was I was part of the original task team. So
1: we'll we'll dig down a little deeper into that since you have first hand knowledge and, uh-huh. and obviously uh-huh. great pride in the success of that program. Uh, you you did mention earlier that uh, preventable diseases among children has been cut from I think it was twelve million to six million. Is that
3: roughly? roughly. and we're we're talking about preventable illnesses: measles, pneumonia, diarrheal disease, uh, things that frankly kids should not die from right and and the good news is 15 years ago that number was 12 million kids a year uh, children under five that now, number now is what now, role is
1: USAID have in in those sorts of results around the world
3: uh, a number of them and it it, it these statistics come from a variety of investments by the agency uh number one investments in malaria which was a is a still a big killer of children investments in water and sanitation because diarrheal disease comes from drinking unsafe drinking water and little children just don't have the resilience to withstand sure. about of that um, we are a big supporter of the the global vaccination initiative GAVI. And uh, childhood immunizations are a tremendous way to improve the health of, of a population of children. Um, and and finally, nutrition and just working on on making sure that, that kids have a good start in life with uh, with proper nutrition. And a tremendous effort on that part for, from USAID.
1: Now, now where does the United States fit in if, if you are, are familiar with uh, the status of other countries' contributions? Where, where are we relative to uh, who would the other major contributors be Japan I, I think is involved in a lot of uh, aid um, European countries
3: um, it depends on sort of what what flavor of assistance you're talking about US government generally on at a total dollar amount is usually the lead in terms of foreign assistance sometimes uh, the per capita uh, proportion shifts but right. but the uh, you know but the the big donor partners to the United States are the United Kingdom Canada the European Union Germany the Norwegian uh, Nor- Norwegian uh, Norway the, the, Scandinavian uh, the Nordic countries, countries yeah. yeah Japan um, to name a few, frankly.
1: So, so the United States is not going it alone. We have uh, a partnership with. Oh, absolutely. Uh, U- absolutely, United Nations organizations, other countries. So, uh, we're not. Uh, no, uh, there, I, I'm sure there are some critics who think that uh, we're spending money and no one else's. Uh,
3: there's always critics. <laughs> <laughs> there's always. Um, I, I think it's uh, probably a well-worn trope, but uh, you know, uh, every year some. Polling company will go out and ask people, you know, what what do you think the U.S. government spends on foreign assistance? And most people say mm, maybe five percent of our budget, and some people say as much as twenty percent. And the answer is it's less than one percent. It isn't a, a big investment out of our national budget that goes into foreign assistance. And what we and that's get,
1: all forms of assistance.
3: All forms of assistance. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: Interesting uh, statistic. Uh, you you talked a little bit about the role of the private sector. Where where does the private sector fit in the the picture here, and in, in terms of support for global health? Yeah. Th-
3: thank you. The uh, you know the private sector has always played an important part, and uh, sometimes it's it gets a little lost in the in the din of saying, well, here's what the U.S. government did, but a lot of what we do couldn't have happened without a, a strong partnership with the private sector. And, and over the years, we've, uh, we've uh, uh, formalized some of these partnerships and things we've called the Global Development Alliances, and, and currently the agency has just rolled out a private sector um, engagement policy, which is probably the most far-reaching policy around working with the private sector that, that I can remember in my, my time at USAID. Um, it, and expands our, 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 it expands our ability to have relations with the private sector, and by this I mean the commercial sector, the for-profit sector, from working with corporal, uh, corporate uh, social responsibility and philanthropy to, you know, direct goods and services being procured and, and everything in between. Um, one of the statistics I like to share uh, is, is uh, something that was brought up at the 25th anniversary of the World Bank. And that statistic was that the private sector globally invests more money in one year in Africa than the World Bank did in 25 years. Mm. And, and, and yet that goes unnoticed. And no, those investments are not necessarily in schools and hospitals, but those investments are in infrastructure and jobs. And from that comes healthcare and schools and what have you. And, and it's really important for us to acknowledge that simply that investment you know, in creating economic opportunity does have a health dividend and an education dividend. I think what we'd like to see happening is is to take that relationship to a, a next level where we where we work with each other we find ways to to leverage that investment in in ways and and, and help direct it towards ways that will actually achieve some of the more uh, lofty goals of self-reliance because from the business community's point of view that's a good goal for them as well and it means that they they have uh, uh, a longer-lasting stake in this. Maybe a couple anecdotes. One is is that uh, talking to some businesses in the past, um, you know, they will say, "Look, USAID, you're great, but someday you're going to leave." I'm here. I'm in this country. My business is here. We're not going away. We are the long-term stable partner in some ways. And uh, it's a little humbling for somebody to tell you that when you think that you are the the, the, the long-term partner. But it's true that if, if we are successful, that is the business community that is going to support and, and sustain these countries long after donor foreign assistance
1: right. departs. And it does sort of uh, provide evidence that... Uh, uh, there's there's a benefit uh, to be recouped. We talked with uh, Carrie Campbell from USGLC earlier, and she was talking about uh, uh, foreign assistance uh, in, in terms of the economic advantages that it creates for US businesses in the long term. Uh, so uh, I, I guess it's evidence, uh, the private sector involvement, that that uh, raising the economies uh, is beneficial for them in the long term, in addition to just the philanthropic benefit of assisting fellow man
3: yes i mean it is it is a global economy and um, i think most people going into business know that and understand that and selling a product or a service uh, beyond our borders is is part of a business plan these days and, and having a, a country that's prosperous where citizens have the economic means to buy a product or a service from a, an American company um, is, uh, is critical to um, uh, maintaining their business. And, and there is therefore this, this what, I, what I would call a virtuous cycle of investment in the economies of emerging economies and abil- the ability of, of uh, donor countries like America to be able to do business there.
1: Uh, Just a reminder to our listeners, this is Global Tennessee. Uh, This is Patrick Ryan from the tennessee world affairs council we're talking with mr david stanton who is visiting nashville from washington dc where he works in the u.s agency for international development Uh, david uh, thanks again for being with us and let's uh, wrap up with just a couple of areas Uh, we're going to talk about pepfar but uh, ebola certainly carry captures the uh, imaginations of americans because we had the 2014 uh, outbreak in west africa and there was great publicity when a a doctor was flown back to Atlanta and he was in quarantine and we were sending doctors over and the Obama administration mobilized uh, significantly to deal with that. Uh, give, us, give us some background and context on uh, then and now in terms of Ebola. Thank you.
3: Yes, um, the the Ebola outbreak in 2014 was unprecedented. It had never happened before, in in at such a scale. Um, the Ebola virus was discovered uh, in the early 1970s in uh, what then is what what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's, a, it's a, a virus in a family of viruses that cause a really severe disease. It's called a hemorrhagic fever. And uh, it, it causes the body to just bleed profusely and people succumb to it very quickly. Uh, in the past- and it's highly contagious. It's highly contagious, but it is highly avoidable with the, the, with the right kind of community mobilization and, and education in the community. But what has happened is in the past was you had small flare-ups that would die down. And and in, what happened in West Africa was it hit large, dense uh, populations and uh, spread very quickly. Uh, some of it was uh, burial practices, so how people handled the bodies of people who had died of, of Ebola. And so a big piece of the response to the epidemic was not just... Uh, medicines and doctors and isolation hospitals, but also a communication strategy to work with local leaders, traditional leaders, and traditional healers to say, look, in this case, when when this person dies of this, this is how the body should be handled. And actually, that went as far as all the medical interventions to reducing the the spread of, of Ebola. Um, one of the things that came out of that experience was the opportunity to test a, an experimental vaccine. Technically it's still experimental, but we have a lot of data on its on its efficacy now and that uh, that vaccine was applied to a outbreak in the De- Democratic Republic of Congo a couple of years ago, very successfully contained only immediately to be followed by another outbreak in another part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Unfortunately the current outbreak is in a is in a part of the country that is has been troubled for years. Um, there's a smoldering civil war with, with groups of people fighting one another, occasionally attacking healthcare workers, which doesn't help. And and an environment like that does not create a, a level of trust. That allows you to work with communities that we've experienced before. It doesn't create an element of trust where you can come in with a, with, in with a vaccine. So we're up against uh, maybe a, not just one, but but two or three enemies. We've got a virus, but we've also got conflict and war and and uh, and a steep curve of education to get over as well there. Um, but I think it's important for people to understand that, that USAID has been a part of these responses from, from the beginning. Um, we are the largest, uh, the U.S. government is the largest donor uh, globally in fighting the current outbreak at, at probably 150 to $160 million and counting. Um, we are closely working with uh, the World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, certainly the government of Congo to To address the the epidemic, and um, you know the 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 outlook is uh, I will be honest still troubling, and I don't know exactly what the the end game will be, but I think you know this is one of those things where we were just going to have to be persistent and vigilant, and the countries that border the eastern Congo are going to have to be persistent and vigilant. Because well, one of the most important things we can do with this epidemic is contain it there and not have it on an airplane back to sure. the United States or to a neighboring country,
1: which might have been easier in the case of the 2014. Outbreak. Yeah, I think it was.
3: I think people are a lot more savvy now uh, and 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 aware. And I think it'd probably be a little harder to do that. I, I think it's also to put people's minds uh, at, at ease that, should it happen, um, the United States has a very robust health system that could respond very quickly we have access to a vaccine now we have access to therapeutics now all that being said it would be great if we didn't have to deal with it and that's why we we're trying so hard to contain this outbreak and any outbreak that should come along but this one is unique and it and it is is quite a challenge for the international community
1: thanks for that uh, PEPFAR tell us about uh, the origins of that the successes uh, uh, why you're why you're proud to tell that story um, we don't have enough time, but I'll give you, <laughs> <laughs> because I, it, it, I have time. I don't know if you have time. <laughs> well, you've I got mean, an airplane.
3: The, the Listeners may not know, but, but HIV AIDS has been my career since 1986. So uh, I have a lot of stories to tell and it starts domestically. Um, I, I won't reveal my age, but, uh, let's just say my, my first AIDS patient was a friend and a lot of people, my vintage, that's where it gets started. So it's, it's a personal story for me. Um, sure. The uh, the When I first joined USAID, we had a modest budget to address HIV. It wasn't uh, nearly enough to do what PEPFAR does. And and actually, when I interviewed for the position, I was warned, don't get your hopes up. Don't be ambitious. And then uh, then one evening, I turned oh, into— Oh, that's a good welcome aboard. <laughs> but I, I was I like a challenge. I like a challenge. But one evening, I tuned into a State of the Union address, and wow, the president announced we're going to spend $15 billion over five years. That, that amount of money just was unbelievable up until that moment. And, and, and a lot of things changed, and there are a lot of uh, people who are sort of unsung heroes, and there are lots of parts of the US government that are unsung heroes. Uh, I think there was a willing and a unique willingness to. Um, to, to break some rules, to look beyond some bureaucracy and say, you know, if this is getting in the way of us saving millions of people, then, uh, then let's, let's find a way around that. And we found a way to buy AIDS drugs, which at the beginning of PEPFAR, uh, treatment cost somewhere between ten dollars and $15,000 a year. We are able to do uh, some fascinating uh, procurement actions. We, we've now brought the, the cost of drugs down to less than $100 a year for patients. Mm. And we're saving millions and millions of lives. And and, and from a personal point of view, it is. So
1: that's leveraging the pharmaceutical industries.
3: Uh, it's leveraging the pharmaceutical industries. It was bringing in the Food and Drug Administration to help the U.S. government break a bureaucratic logjam that didn't allow us to buy generic drugs. And we were able to orchestrate our ability to buy the drugs while protecting the U.S. markets from, the, from the, the patent version of the drugs, while we were able to buy the generic versions from mainly sourced from India but some other places. And, and, and as a result, millions and millions of people have been saved. I will, This is not an exaggeration. There are a handful of countries that probably have been rescued from extinction. Because if you have a, a, a country of a one and a half million people and 29, 30 percent of your population of reproductive age and most productivity is slated to die in the next five years, what kind of a nation do you mm. have left? Yeah, And so there's a place like Swaziland, Lesotho, Namibia, Botswana, and, uh, and, and they were literally pulled back from the brink. Um, it, it's extraordinary. There is, there's still a lot more to do, and but we're we're making uh, tremendous inroads. Um, PEPFAR has has really doubled down on getting people on treatment for a couple reasons. One is, it saves people's lives, and that's probably the most important, and probably the only justification you need to give people life-saving drugs. But it also renders the individual less infectious or nearly, or frankly, uninfectious. And so if we can keep people on treatment, there is a possibility that we can then bring down the spread of this disease so that, one, a country can then manage this on their own without foreign assistance, but, two, we could actually put a lid on this epidemic and move on to the next pressing problem, whatever that may turn out to be. So it it was... was, uh, just an extraordinary uh, decision. And I know a lot of people had a hand in that. And um, I was glad to be a part of it. And what I tell people is it isn't often you get a job where you can draw a line between what you did and millions of people saving their lives.
1: Oh, that's terrific. And uh, that continues uh, to be funded. It's a, a bipartisan success story?
3: It is it is extraordinary bipartisan success story. Um, at a time when it was hard to get uh, bipartisan action on a lot of things in Congress, the reauthorization of PEPFAR for another five years was uh, a unanimous vote. There was no dissent on either side of the, of the aisle. And, uh, and and I think that goes for for a lot of foreign assistance. And, w- and
1: what year was that?
3: That was uh, uh, 2013.
1: Okay, so so
3: it's up for another five. It was up for another, and we went through the same scenario.
1: Terrific. Yeah. yeah. Lastly, let's talk about uh, Bahamas in the news. Uh, tens of thousands affected by it. Thousands still missing. Yeah. Uh, uh, Grand Bahamas Island and uh, the Abacos Islands uh, decimated. Uh, a really horrible scene. Uh, certainly USAID will be involved, uh, global health and, yeah. and otherwise. Give us a snapshot of what we can expect to see with uh, US government involvement.
3: Absolutely. First off, you know, you know my heart goes out to, to the Bahamas and the people and uh, we all see the pictures, we all hear the stories and it's just it's unbelievable, it's breathtaking. Um, I think one thing about USAID that perhaps not all your listeners know is that that we are, in some ways, the world's first responders. We have an Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance. If there's an earthquake, in in. Uh, Indonesia or Haiti or a volcano going off, and in this case, if there's a hurricane in, in uh, the Bahamas, uh, we're at the ready. And probably before the destruction hit, the planning was already underway with our Office of Foreign and Disaster Assistance. We don't go at it alone. Uh, we coordinate with the U.S. military. The, the Coast Guard has been Uh, just an, an incredibly critical component of the response. There's no functioning airport in the Bahamas right now. And so coming in with naval vessels, with amphibious vessels... Uh, if, if aircraft that you tell me, but aircraft that can take off vertically, move horizontally, and land vertically are are the, the uh, Marines, of the, the Marines
1: Osprey uh, yeah, tilt rotors.
3: Yeah, and absolutely of the essence in moving critical goods and services. So right now it's it's the the emergency response, right. um, uh, and and I would imagine that at some point we come into a, a sort of a rebuilding response. And uh, I, I know that, that our bureau will be asked to uh, participate in some way, and and that w- remains to be seen. But I would be surprised if we are not uh, at, at a later date part of that uh, part of that response. Um, but but I think it's important for the American people and certainly your listeners to know that that oftentimes the first people in with emergency supplies is is this agency USAID.
1: Well, a big hat tip to uh, you and your colleagues for the the great work that's being done in in our name around the world. Uh, Thanks uh, uh, for coming in and talking with us, David. My pleasure.
3: Anytime. Thank you very much.
1: And uh, hopefully we can get you back to drill down more in in PEPFAR, because uh, obviously that's a a great story to be told, and and you've got uh, such a perspective on it. Thanks again. Thank you. This has been uh, Global Tennessee. We've been talking with David Stanton from the U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, earlier we spoke with Carrie Campbell, the National Outreach Coordinator for the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. Uh, both are here in Nashville today to talk to community leaders about the Global Health Program and about the U.S.GLC's program. Uh, you can get more information on both organizations and both of these specialists uh, in our podcast notes. And thank you for listening to Global Tennessee. Please take a look at the Tennessee World Affairs Council website for information on becoming a member or supporting the work that we do to bring the world to Nashville and to Tennessee. Uh, That's it for today. I'm Patrick Ryan, president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Thanks for
0: listening. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy. I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org slash podcast for more information.